It's 6 o'clock in London, 1 p.m. in New York, 1 a.m. in Hong Kong, 3 a.m. in Sydney. Hope you're getting more sleep this week, Sydney Stock Exchange IT team. 10 a.m. in San Francisco and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Greetings, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. My name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO video live stream series three, episode one starts here. And the first four letters are F-U-T-U. That's a 10 cent backed organization called presumably Futu. It's drawn legions of new users in an online IPO frenzy in Hong Kong in the course of this year. And despite the lack of an ant financial IPO, Hong Kong has played host to no fewer than, and remember we've still got a month to go, 125 IPOs this year, raising $39.1 billion so far. The in the course of 2020, putting it on track in Hong Kong to finish this year with the highest amounts of funds raised in the past decade. Meanwhile, there's news from America. The Obama administration is now taking callers and appointing people to positions subject to the scrutiny of Parliament in the United States of America. Of course, Janet Yellen. She's joining because, of course, she's three years younger than the president. So therefore, it's good to have a bit of, you know, youthful exuberance in the building. She's going to be in the Treasury building as the Treasury Secretary. Given her previous history as the woman behind a huge amount of quantitative easing, that's leading to a flurry of quips. And we're asking you a question tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Where will interest rates be by the end of Janet Yellen's term as the US Treasury Secretary? 0%, minus 1%, minus 2%, minus 5%, minus 10%, or possibly lower. Certainly, it seems unlikely that we're going to manage to get anything like a positive yield curve in the course of the near future. $39 billion have been raised in the Hong Kong exchange during the course of this year so far. And meanwhile, there was a deal yesterday worth 39 to 44 billion, depending on who was using their abacus at which point in the day. S&P Global acquiring IHS Market, a shock exit from market finder Lance Ugla as part of the package. Admittedly, given the fact that he's staring in the face something like a $50 million package, as a result of a change in ownership, plus whatever stock he can manage to subsequently sell when he is part of the S&P Global organization, I presume provides an elegant degree of comfort for the future of his career after 20 incredible entrepreneurial years. Elsewhere, Tokyo Stock Exchange boss has bowed out in every sense of the world, buying and scraping, having been dispatched as responsible person for the October 1st Tokyo technology breakdown. No news yet on whether the ASX will be obliged to follow suit by the Australian regulators, albeit nobody is holding their breath. Now, ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, while we look at China, is it seeking to outyell in the US and quantitative easing? And indeed, at the same time, launching a new five-year plan, something you probably missed while you're paying attention to who it was that was managing to either victoriously lead home the field in the US presidential election or possibly have their presidency stolen from under them. With a zest for central planning, which is not clearly on this show, ladies and gentlemen. We're looking at a more distributed future this evening. Our guest, Dominic Frisbee, described by no less than The Spectator as mercurially witty, is the world's only financial writer, comedian, columnist, gold bug, and indeed an all-round general polyglot who is here this evening to talk about a multifaceted range of topics. He is Money Week in the UK's main commentator on gold in a regular column which also delves into commodities, currencies and cryptocurrencies. His books are Bitcoin, The Future of Money, written presciently, good grief, six or seven years ago, back when almost nobody talked about Bitcoin, Life After the State, and a show which I think you originally had an Edinburgh Festival show called Let's Talk About Tax, which spawned a book. Surely a first in the pantheon of financial literature, ladies and gentlemen, daylight robbery, the past, present and future of tax. Don't forget to bang us a like down there, ladies and gentlemen. Tell us how much you like the show or indeed add your subscription. This is IPOVID live stream. I am delighted to be with Dominic Frisbee this evening. Dominic, good evening. Where in the world are you today? <laughs> I'm in London, in, in sunny southeast London. It was, a, it was a beautiful winter's day today. Good to hear all together. Well, we can see some of the exciting 
beautiful posters you have behind you. They're not necessarily high art, but they are nonetheless very interesting in the topics of what we're going to be talking about this evening. But tell us, I mean, how do you manage to get into the business of being a stand-up comedian and many other things beside? Your silky tones are well known for voiceovers in the world of British television, and indeed many cable channels the world over. How do you manage to get into that in the first place before you then manage to morph into the world of finance? Oh, I, I, the, it all started. I, I left drama school and I wrote a song and I was trying to get the song made into a Christmas novelty single. This was back in the 1990s. And I phoned up my friend from university and I knew he was a music agent. And I said, can you help me turn this song into a Christmas novelty single? And he said, no, I can't, but go and perform it at my brother's club. So I did. And his brother's club was a comedy club called Up the Creek in Greenwich. And uh, the bloke who ran it, his brother, was a chap called Malcolm Hardy. And I was very lucky. The gig went very well. And Malcolm said, oh, I'll book you again. And so I just found myself, you know, being paid cash in hand to be a stand-up comedian in the late 1990s. It was quite by accident. It was not something I ever particularly wanted to be. And um, But it's quite a nice lifestyle. And then I made a bit of money and uh, uh, from that and from doing voiceovers. Voiceovers is quite a well-paid uh, profession. And I was trying to invest it and I didn't trust all these uh, fund managers I kept meeting or wanted to take their one and two percent here and there. And I wasn't didn't entirely trust them. And there were all these people talking about gold on the Internet. And I was quite persuaded by all the gold arguments. This was 2005, 2006. And, um, and I was trying to find out a means to talk to them all. So I started doing a podcast <laughs> rather like you and interviewing them. And the podcast was quite popular. And one of the people I interviewed said, oh, do you want to come and write about commodities for our magazine? And that was Merrin Somerset Webb. And that was a magazine called Money Week. And I said to Merrin, I'm not entirely sure I'm qualified. And she said, no, no, no. We need people who can talk about finance in a language that ordinary people can understand. And um, the column was quite popular. And I was usually writing about gold. And gold was in a bull market at the time. So you know, everyone looks like a genius in a bull market and I look pretty clever because my calls were good and people made money following what I said. And so it's all really a, a snowball of accidents, really, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Quite fascinating altogether. It's, it's an intriguing how you spend all of these years assiduously trying to come up with an incredible plan. And ultimately, what was it Eisenhower said? You know, plans are everything or planning is everything, but plans are nothing. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got a question for Dominic Frisbee, send them over to us wherever you're watching us live at the moment. We'll be delighted to talk them through with our guest today. He's going to talk to us about all manner of things and indeed moving straight ahead into, you got into gold. So what yeah. happened? Did you fall out of gold? I mean, fall out of love? Or what was the ultimate end result of this relationship? Well, it was, it's very interesting, I think, because, I think we're, we're seeing it again now with Bitcoin hitting record highs and also Tesla, you know, the extraordinary financial success story or the investment success story that is Tesla. And there's two dynamics. Firstly is, you know, I think I fell too in love with gold. And, you know, if you, if you fall too in love with an investment and particularly something like gold where it's very political, it becomes a bit of a religion. And the most diehard gold bugs are, you know, fiat money is going to collapse. We're going to go back to a gold standard. And there's this sort of worship of gold. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for that. But that worship of gold led me to stay long for longer than I should have. You know, the warning, gold peaked in 2011, but we basically had a year to get out of the gold market. 2012, gold was pretty much flat. And then 2013 is when... This, the skids came to it and it went into, you know, five or six year bear market. And maybe gold only fell by 30 percent, something like that, which wasn't the end of the world. But what was the end of the world was the mining companies, you know, lost 95 percent of their value, even like the large caps. And it was a total disaster. And it, not only were they all losing their value, the S&P, the Nasdaq, there was a huge opportunity cost because you were missing this huge bull market elsewhere. And so I fell too in love with my investment. I was a bit religious about it. And that was, you know, a bit of paid tuition, if you like. And I think we're seeing something similar. We see it with Bitcoin. You know, I love Bitcoin. I think it's fantastic. I really do. 
think it's a great breakthrough. But its biggest zealots are religious about it. You know, and and you see them arguing on Twitter and there's lynch mobs of people who dare criticize, you know, whatever the latest holy creed of Bitcoin is. And it's a similar kind of religion that you some people feel about leave or remain with Brexit or other people feel about Biden and Trump or whatever the political argument is. But it's it's you know, it's it's fanatical. And you see it also with Tesla. Now, Tesla is one of the most amazing promotes, <laughs> if you like, that the stock market has ever seen. It's a brilliant story. There's a guy who drives a Tesla in my street and I walk past it every day when I walk to the to the to the uh, co-op at the end of my road and I admire the Tesla. I think it's a beautiful car. But, you know, the valuations of Tesla are extraordinary. And people have come to sort of worship at the at the altar of Tesla. And so there are two dynamics. The, the, the way to make a lot of money in a, is to find a bull market and go long. And if you want to stay for the duration of the bull market, it's really important that you fall in love with your investment. If you're a bit cynical about your investment, you're likely to jump off too soon. You really have to believe in it. But at the same time, if you believe in it too much, you'll get caught in the bear market. So it's a very difficult balance. You have to believe in it. You have to believe in that God. But all the, at the same time, you have to know when that God's time is up. Does that make yeah, sense? It does. And I mean, it's very interesting because actually when everybody's reached the total religious fervor, that's when we get these great stories of, you know, whoever it was, Rockefeller, wasn't it, famously deciding that the US stock market had boomed and bubbled in 1929 because the shoe shine. It was actually Joe, Joe Kennedy, that was. Sorry, you're absolutely right. It was Joe Kennedy. I knew as soon as I said that I was on the wrong person. Um, and, and those are the sorts of stories that, you know, do typify this sort of thing. So then talk to us a little bit about, I mean, we'll jump back and forward, but talk to me a little bit about this. Bitcoin. How did you find out about Bitcoin and how did you therefore come into the cult of Bitcoin? Well, um, when I was writing Life After the State, one of the that was a sort of the philosophy of Life After the State is basically outlining a fairly libertarian small state argument. And um, the argument that we have too much state in our lives and we'd all be a, a lot better off if rather than, you know, government being 40 or 50 percent of GDP, if it was closer to 15 or 20 percent and i tried to explain how and why it is that government grew to be so big um if, if you look back in 1900 at the turn of the 20th century government was only about 10 percent of gdp and the first big turning point was was probably the first world war or the national insurance acts that that led up to it in america the introduction of income tax in 1913 they all sort of happened at once and then the next big turning point was probably, you know, cleaning up after the First World War. The next big turning was the Second World War. But government just grew and grew and grew. And my conclusion was that the reason that government has been able to grow so big is that it has total control effectively of the money supply because of fiat money. You know, there's no limit to how much fiat money can be printed. The only limitations are placed by the bond market to a certain extent. But there was a much more, under a gold standard, government was much more restricted in what it was a, in a, able to do because it didn't have the gold to pay for it. And, and in fact, the UK and the French and the German governments all came off the gold standard in 1914 in order to print the money they needed to pay for that war. Now, if they'd stayed on the gold standard, that war could not have happened to anything like the same extent that it did because there just wasn't the gold to pay for it and i think that's an extraordinary fact and so my conclusion in life after state anyway was that was that was that that it was this fiat money that it enabled government to grow as big as it had and so if we were to put a limit on how, how far government can grow we need to go back we need to reform money money is the sort of the answer and then as i was writing it um somebody invented or satoshi nakamoto invented bitcoin and people started emailing me they knew i was a big champion of money reform and people started emailing me and this would have been 2011 2012 and i sort of ignored their emails because i was so in love with gold at the time 
And I was thinking, well, yeah, they should invent a cryptocurrency that's backed by gold and be fine. And I didn't take the time to find out as much about it. And then suddenly Bitcoin went to $1,200, the same price yeah. as an ounce of gold. And I was like, oh, my God, I've missed this stupid thing. And people had sent me, I had a few Bitcoins because people had sent me them to try and get me interested. And so my catch up trade, if you like, was to write the book. I thought I've, I've missed the, you know, and it kept doubling. And I, one of my rules is never buy after something's doubled because I, I was in my junior mining stocks and you you shouldn't touch them after they double. But Bitcoin kept doubling and doubling. And I was like, I can't buy it. I can't buy it. It keeps doubling. And, and you know, so many people have been through the same journey with it. And so, yeah, the book was was my catch up trade. It's amazing to think of it as a catch up trade now because it, it was actually the first book on Bitcoin by a recognized publisher. Yes. And it's quite incredible. And that was when 2014. Is that right? Yeah, it came out in 2014. Yeah. And the first yeah. crypto winter. The first, yes, the first crypto winter. And I kind of think Bitcoin I, I, was five hundred dollars Four. it was about three hundred dollars when it came out. When it came out. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's. It was quite interesting because the epitaphs, people couldn't write the epitaphs for it fast enough at that juncture. It was all over. Yes. Every, I mean, how many boom and busts has Bitcoin had? It's incredible. Yeah. Yes, it is quite incredible. So and what's going on? Do you, know why, do you know why I think that is? Tell me. Because, you know, you always get these bubbles around tech, new tech, mm -hmm. you know, the Internet, railways, Tesla biotech stocks um do you remember 3d printing in around about 2015 <laughs> so yeah that was going to change the world 3d printing so tech always attracts new bubbles and bitcoin is a tech but it's also a new system of money <laughs> and so it's like it's it's you know if marvel comics were designing the ultimate bubble superhero you'd, you'd struggle to come up with something that's got more potential to be a bubble than bitcoin limited supply new technology new system of money it's going to save the world according to its uh, you know keenest advocates it's it's about as bubbly as it gets yes it is interesting and i mean to go back to the religion point that you make it has had this amazing series of advocates i mean i remember while speaking at a bitcoin conference in 2012 it's one of the first conferences in poland and i got up and said various things and they were all with me because i appeared as bloke in suit suddenly wants to talk and said look i support you i understand this is wonderful and they weren't really paying attention until i said some pro bitcoin things and they all thought this bloke's great and then i said the one thing you've got to understand though is that Bitcoin is not going to be the only cryptocurrency and there will be other cryptocurrencies coming soon. At which point in time, they all went incredibly sour. Unfortunately, didn't have any drink cans to throw at me because they would have been trying to lynch me. And it's very interesting. That's sort of one truth, you know, one true belief. So where do you sit on the scale of Bitcoin changing the world and cryptocurrency changing the world, aka where do you see the role of each in, in that process? Well, it's it's quite interesting because it the finite supply was designed into bitcoin it's part of the thing the finite supply but what he didn't put into the design was stopping all the forks <laughs> yeah so there's plenty of forks out of it and you can't there's no finite supply of other cryptocurrencies there are thousands of them and so but what bitcoin and probably you know there are other cryptocurrencies that it may be in some ways are better than Bitcoin, there's more that you can do with them, or they have faster transaction speeds, or they're more private, or they're more user friendly, whatever it is, there's all sorts of reasons why they might be better. But what Bitcoin has that is this incredible network effect, you know, it's the it's become the sort of halfway point between fiat money and crypto. So if you want to buy, you know, Monero, or Ethereum, or Stellar, or whatever it is, you sort of have to buy Bitcoin first and then so it's got that thing, but it's just got this network effect and and just don't underestimate the power of a network effect because, you know, there are probably better search engines than Google. I don't even know. There are probably but Google's got the network. There are probably, you know, Betamax, it's widely agreed, was probably better than VHS, but VHS had the network. Um, you know, mini disc was probably better than CDs because you couldn't scratch a mini disc. But CDs were the ones that had the network. You know, they were the ones that were built into every um, computer or whatever. So Bitcoin's got the network effect and, and that's why it's so strong. And 
all the things that other cryptocurrencies can do, you know, for example, if you want more privacy, well, you can just use a privacy wallet. They're layers that can be put on top of Bitcoin. So at the moment, it's just got this, you know, first mover advantage. When you say cryptocurrency, Bitcoin's almost synonymous with it. And so the other currencies all, almost don't matter. And when you have a, a bull, a bear market, Bitcoin doesn't fall by as much as the other currencies do. But when you have a bull market, the other currencies go up by more, but they move later. So you can see that when, when you get a bull market in Bitcoin, you can move into the other currencies and there's always a catch-up trade there. And I think almost more fortunes might have been made in Ethereum than Bitcoin because so many people just sold their Bitcoins too soon. But yeah, so but it's got the network effect. Um, and so that answers the first part of your question. And, and I can mm -hmm. answer the second part is, is what currency, what role a cryptocurrency is going to have in our future. I think we're just moving into a sort of Hayekian world of, of numerous currencies. And it's just going to be a reality that on our phones and on our computers, we have lots of wallets or, or equivalent of wallets. And we'll use fiat money for some things. We'll use our air miles for something else, our co-op supermarket points for something else. And we'll have numerous cryptocurrencies as well. Where people are using cryptocurrencies most is free uh, to make and receive payments is freelancers in the freelance digital nomads who work in the internet economy. That's where it's going to find the most use. You know, I'm not, I don't think I'm ever going to be using Bitcoin to buy stuff in my local Tesco's. It's money for the internet and cross-border transactions. And so, for example, I recorded an occasional podcast for this guy and he just lives in another country. It doesn't, it's only like a 50 quid job. And by the, you know, sending money yeah. from 50 quid from one country to another is just a pain in the ass. PayPal's got higher fees. So it's just, he just pays me a Bitcoin and it's just the easiest country for that to affect that simple 50 quid cross-border transaction, the easiest currency, I should say. So that's where it's going to find use, digital nomads. And that's a massively growing workforce, by the way. Absolutely fascinating. Having been a, a digital nomad in a previous life in the early 1990s, when you had to have a backpack full of cables to go everywhere, whereas nowadays people land and they go, where's the Wi-Fi? They bring out their Wi-Fi divining rods and there you go. I mean, digital nomadry is so much easier. We've got a couple of questions coming in. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Saidasif Saman, I'm going to come to your question in just a moment because actually it flows on beautifully from. We've got a question from one of our previous guests to this show, Andy Ross, the chief executive of Curve Global. That's a subdivision of the London Stock Exchange Group. Andy's asking, do you think, Dominic, that central banks will stop or prevent Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, i.e., can it get too big? that they can't take the risk or the ability to control fiat money? I think, um, well, I noticed what the FCA have done in, in England is, in Britain, I should say, starting from January the 3rd, I think it is, is any form of Bitcoin derivative or proxy, it's become illegal to own. <laughs> so, you know, if I wanted to buy a Bitcoin ETF, for example, or if I wanted to spread bet, Bitcoin or buy Bitcoin CFDs or something, they've made that illegal. So I think that's quite an interesting development. And they've done that under the guise of your own safety. Um, but they haven't actually made Bitcoin illegal. Um, George Osborne was actually a big champion of cryptocurrencies. You know, he wanted to turn London into a bit of a crypto hub and he had himself photographed, you know, buying some Bitcoin from a from a Bitcoin ETF. So, you know, that that view seems to have changed um i don't you know that that is a common argument that you know bitcoin will be made illegal i think it will probably be made illegal in more in the more tyrannical um you know large state regimes and and the more money they print the more you go down the route of of large statism so i guess i guess it is a possibility but um, you know, they should have done it years ago, but they just, they probably just didn't see the threat that it was. It was always this sort of novelty and nobody really had the courage to close it down and it's grown. And, 
to close it down now, they'd be killing such a big economy that, and all they do is, I mean, you know, never underestimate the stupidity of governments, but all they do is just drive that crypto economy into another country when surely you want it in your country and have all the benefits. But so I think it's a possibility, but, but I'm not as concerned about it as others are. So that brings us very elegantly to actually the, the point that Said Asif uh, Zaman is making. Hello, good evening and welcome. Um, and he, he points out the comment to Andy Ross that is effectively that, you know, essentially central banks have tried and now central banks are going for their own digital currency. So I'm curious, what, what do you think of this central bank digital currency move, Dominic? Yeah, well, that's definitely on the cards. And it'll like all these things, it'll probably come quicker, quicker than you expect. And I do think we're going to get central bank digital currencies and we'll all have our wallet with the central bank. And it'll be tremendously efficient, especially for things like cross-border payments. And it'll reduce international reliance on the US dollar as the reserve currency, which is another reason, particularly the ECB are um, agitating for it and the IMF. It's also going to be a way by which they impose negative interest rates yeah. Um, because you have your, your savings with the central bank rather than with HSBC or wherever you have your money with the central bank and they impose negative interest rates. But it would also be the means by which you receive your UBI, your universal basic income. And, you know, a year ago, I didn't really think UBI was, was a realistic possibility. But because of COVID-19, it sort of happened by the back door, you know, furlough and all these various um, subsidies that are being issued to help people out during COVID-19, they're effectively a form of sort of complicated backdoor form of UBI. And, but, you know, maybe going forward, if you want to receive your UBI, you will have to have an account with the central bank. And that, that's how they'll, and, you know, taxes will be collected that way. So central bank digital currencies and uh, are definitely, um, something we're moving towards and they will elevate the power of the central bank within our society already tremendous central banks have tremendous power you know especially since 2008 with all the money they've printed they've when when one body has control of money they have tremendous power and so central bank the role of central banks in our lives they're going to get more powerful within society i think and ordinary banks commercial banks um will become less powerful HSBC, Lloyd's, all those kind of things. Um, it's interesting, money used to be created, fiat money I'm talking about now, when loans were issued. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I went to take out a mortgage on a house, I bought a house, I took out a mortgage on the house for whatever, half a million pounds or something, the bank would actually create, people think that that half a million pounds that the bank lent me was based on its reserves, it isn't. It's based on the asset that's my house. And they would create that money against that asset. And that was how money is created. And so I think it was like 95 or 97% of money, something like that was created through commercial banking. Well, that's gonna change because now governments are creating money directly. And that, that, that will happen partly through central bank um, digital currencies. You know, governments will quantitative ease money and then distribute it through, through these wallets. But the other way it's happening is um, if you look at um, uh, the bailout loans that a lot of small companies have been given, bounce back loans, I should call them, um, like ordinarily a bank would not lend money for nothing to a company that is about to go under because of a crisis. <laughs> it would demand, you know, fairly punitive rates to compensate for its risk. Yeah, but basically. And I think they've estimated that half of those bounce back loans aren't going to be paid back because the companies who they've been lent to will have gone bust. But that bounce back loan money has been created through the banking system, but it's backed by the government. The governments will bail out the banks who lend that money and then uh, they'll bail out those loans, certainly. But that money will have already gone into the economy by the time that the company in question goes bust. You know, I've got my little bailout loan because I thought I've, I've got a bounce back loan. I have a limited company. They're basically offering free money. I may as well take it. Um, uh, you know, and 
if I was a struggling business, I haven't. It's just sat there in my bank account at the moment. But if I was a struggling business, I would be spending that money trying to keep the business afloat. So that money has gone into the economy. So it's actually quite inflationary from the point of view of new money making its way into the economy. Maybe it doesn't show up on on inflation measures, but it is quite inflationary per se. It's fascinating altogether how these are impacting. And actually, I hadn't thought about it before, but actually the interesting way government works. So the Ministry of Defence, which really wage wars, the Department of Employment, which deals with unemployment. And now we have bounce back loans, which are money you give to companies that are effectively dead in the water. I haven't thought about it that way before, Dominic. Thank you. Um, it's an interest. It's very, very interesting looking at this. We've got a couple of questions coming from Side once again. Hello, Side. It's great to hear from you this evening. So, Dominic, do you think universal standardization for legislation is necessary, which is missing in crypto trading at the moment? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's not something I, I'm really, I know that much about. Okay. Universal, it's funny because universal legislation, for example, they've tried to impose standardization of taxation internationally, and they've never been able to make it happen because different countries, different governments in different countries have got different agendas that doesn't necessarily tie in, you know. So they've tried it, but it hasn't worked. But what we've seen with COVID is a sort of, you know, if you look at the reaction of the British government, it wasn't that different to the French government. It wasn't that different to the Italian government. The reactions of all the governments to COVID-19 have been fairly similar with the exception, certainly in Europe, with the exception of Sweden, which went down its own... Um, uh, idiosyncratic shall we say route so we sort of had the standardization of legislation although by accident and so maybe somebody could campaign for some kind of international standardization of legislation towards cryptocurrencies which would be a good thing or maybe what would happen is just that one country does it well or badly and other countries just copy it and in the case of covid I don't know who was first, but everyone seemed to be copying everyone else because they didn't really know what to do themselves. Yes, it's very interesting. And certainly we've seen the one problem with standardization of regulation at all points in time is if you look, for example, at the European Union, well, crowdfunding, which was a huge growing thing 10 years ago, they've just managed to get a European Union wide crowdfunding rule. And it actually ends up with a series of caveats. So, in fact, there isn't pan-European crowdfunding because lots of different countries have got their own little idiosyncrasies, to use that very elegant word you deployed as well. That's quite fascinating. Thank you very much for the questions, Andy Ross and Side. I'm going to move on to actually Side's asked us another question. Moving forward into the world of decentralized finance, what do you think is the future there for the decentralization movement, Dominic? Um well, you know, every year or two in in the crypto world there's some buzzy buzzy new thing and i remember in the move in the when when it peaked crypto peaked in 2016 the last time bitcoin went to um twenty thousand dollars was it or was it 2017 i've got my years muddled up now but i'm 50 and all the years just sort of blend into one um but there was a massive amount of excitement about decentralized social media yeah and i was really excited about that because i could already see signs of censorship coming into facebook and twitter and youtube and so on and you know i, I just worries me all of that and the reason that youtube ironically grew so big in the first place is that it was totally uncensored and once they had you know the network effect to go back to that work once youtube had pretty much a monopoly on online videos, then suddenly it got much more respectful about, you know, paying royalties and not licking content and all the rest of it. Whereas early in the early days, it was the total wild west. And that's what enabled it to grow. But anyway, so, and decentralized social media was a thing. And so we were gonna have, you know, decentralized Twitter, and that meant it was gonna be censorship free. Uh, and the same goes for decentralized video sharing and and all the rest of it. And then and so there was a lot of excitement. A lot of money was raised and people were throwing investment at all these new apps. And then it's just never really materialized. And so it might just be one of those little tech bubbles. And 
so I wonder if decentralized finance is, is having its own little hype cycle and it's it'll have its own little hype cycle. There'll be a lot of investment. It's going to change finance and then reality sets in and we realize actually this is going to take five or 10 years to get the technology right, five or 10 years to build up the network and the whole thing sort of deflates. But a few people stick with it and they carry on and then eventually you get your sort of next wave. Um, what do they call that? The plateau of productivity, according mm -hmm. to the um, Gartner's hype cycle. So I think we're in the in the first phase, coming to the top of the first phase of of, of the hype cycle. Then you get the sell off, and then you get the slow growth. With DeFi is probably where dot com was in about two thousand. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. Yes, no, that makes sense. See, I think it's very interesting, but the, the difference that strikes me about decentralized finance is that the whole legal system has been created to have a form of centralization. So therefore, if you look at, for example, exchanges, such as the one Andy runs, who was asking us a question a few minutes ago, there is a belief that there must be something rooted in a physical position in London, even if it's all on computers, et cetera. And I just, I struggle with the idea that decentralized finance is really going to take off simply because it truly is running against the law. Whereas cryptocurrency, I can see, cryptocurrency skirts around the law or it maybe is not something that the law particularly, the government particularly likes, but that's very, very different. I mean, it's, you know, it's effectively like something squirting out of a false bottle rather than something that's fundamentally against the system. Yeah, I hear that argument. But what, what I would stress here is that there, are, like, there was a famous speech written by, I think he was the singer from The Grateful Dead about the internet and he wrote it in about 98 and it was a document and it went totally viral and it was you governments from the old worlds you have no place here this is uncharted frontiers where you have no power something like that he phrased it better than that but the crypto economy the internet economy is just a huge borderless economy on the internet that governments in particular often it's hard to know particularly in the decentralized world where that um uh company that decentralized company is based under which legal jurisdiction does it fall so you've got this sort of crypto world that is to a large extent beyond the power of government. So I, I, I take your point that it's against the law, but who is imposing the law in a borderless, mm -hmm. you know, intangible digital world? I think that's a very interesting point. And certainly as things become more and more popular, you can see how it effectively creates its own parallel universe. Something like, well, second life to talk about other things that were great bubbles once upon a time and have almost yeah. disappeared from view. Well, you, you bizarrely, make... one of the biggest uses of cryptocurrency is in these, <coughs> you know, VR games, yes. online games. That's one of yeah. their biggest applications. And, you know, is that the real world or not? I, I think that's a very good, that's a remarkably useful question. And who knows what reality we're all in at the moment. It, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, yes, it's fascinating. Said Zaman, thank you very, very much for all of your questions. Really great to have you on the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, you can subscribe. Just hit the button below wherever you're watching us in media. We're here on a Tuesday evening with this live stream at 6 p.m. London time, 1 o'clock New York time, 7 p.m. in Central European time. And equally, if you're interested in the world of exchanges, in the world of centralized finance and where it's meeting decentralized finance increasingly, don't forget, subscribe to Exchange Invest, exchangeinvest.com. It is the world's only news service dedicated to markets, financial infrastructure, exchanges et al. And it's edited by my good self. As opposed to if you want a bit of lighter financial reading, you could always drop in by Money Week, whose columnist Dominic Frisbee is with me this evening. And it's a joy to have you actually. So it's so interesting to hear this the, the ideas you have. So 
run back through me a couple of things because I, I got to get to your book on tax, but behind you, what I can see is this fantastic poster, Dominic Frisbee's Financial Game Show. Oh. Tell us a little about that. Well, that was a, um, a show that I did at the Edinburgh Festival in 2018. Basically, when you do the Edinburgh Festival, you and, and also when you write a book, you, you put all this effort into making really nice posters and flyers, or in the case of a book, a really nice cover. And there's a really good graphic designer, really talented guy. And you come up with these brilliant designs. And then as soon as that book's been printed or the, the show's gone, it's over. And, I th and I'm thinking I've got all these fantastic designs. So, and you can get these lovely canvases, um, printed online you know it costs about 25 quid and you get a beautiful canvas so i like to every time i've written a book or done a show i go and get a canvas printed and and keep a memento of it and so that one there you see is dominic frisbee's financial game show that was a show i did in 2018 and it was basically um i was trying to sort of it was at the intersection between the traditional game shows like play your cards right and um, the Price is Right and things like that. And the sort of more highbrow game shows like Mastermind and QI and so on. And the idea was all, I got some sponsorship from some Bitcoin companies. So I had loads of prizes to give out, but all the prizes were related to money in some way. So we had silver bars, yesterday's money, cash, today's money, Bitcoin cash, tomorrow's money, and we also had subscriptions to Money Week. So you had some advice on how to spend it. And, and, but all the questions were related to money in some way. So I don't know if you remember Play Your Cards Right. Mm -hmm. um, there used to be a scene where Bruce would play the cards and everyone would shout higher, lower, higher, lower. Well, we did that, but we did it for house prices. Um, <laughs> and then we had another game, Gappity Gap, which is based on blankety blank, the old thing. We had to fill in the missing word, but it was always famous quotes about money. So, for example, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor said, Gap is the best deodorant. And what was the missing word there? And the missing word was money. Money is the best deodorant. So that was another thing. So we all played all sorts of games like that. And it was sort of a bit pub quizzy, but it got quite tense at the end because there was 500 quid in the safe and the guy was trying to crack open the safe. So it was great fun. And that's what that show was. It was basically a, a, a game show from the Edinburgh Festival in 2018. Absolutely fantastic. So another show that you had at the Edinburgh Festival led to your latest book about taxation. Tell us the story of that. Well, that was a show uh, in 2016 called Let's Talk About Tax. And, um, and I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I was convinced that governments were able to grow as big as they had because of their control of money. And if we were to save the world, you know, we need to fix our system of money. And the next idea I had from there was that in fact, um, tax, you shape a society by the way you tax it, how free or subordinated it's people. Because there's a the amount you're taxed is basically a measure of freedom. You know, if you're taxed 50% of everything you earn, you're not that free. If you're taxed 15% of everything you earn, you're quite free. Um, a slave, is taxed for 100 percent. He doesn't even own his own labor, his own body. He's, he's got, you know, and whereas in an anarchy, there's no taxation at all. So you're totally free. So taxation is like a measure of freedom. And you shape a society's destiny by the way you tax it. The greatest societies in history, the most innovative, the inventive, the most innovative and so on, have always been low tax jurisdictions, whereas the most disastrous ones, you know, North Korea, the Soviet Union, They've always been very high tax jurisdictions. And so I started looking at history and then I came to this, got this idea that actually I looked at every sort of great event that you might think of, the birth of Christ, 1066, the Second World War, the English Civil War, the American Civil War, the French Revolution. And you suddenly thought behind every great event in history, there is some kind of tax story that is very often untold, but without that tax story that event could not have unfolded in the way that it did every war in history was funded by taxation every conquest is about taking control of the tax base the land the labor the produce the profit every revolution is a rising up against some kind of 
injustice, some inequity perpetrated by the tax system. You know, most religions were a, were a system of, of governance of which taxation is a key part. Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem to pay taxes. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have been there had Augustus not levied that thing. So, you know, there's a tax story at the birth of Christianity. Forgiving, forbidding to give tribute was the crime for which Jesus was eventually um, crucified. So there's a tax story at his death. So I just suddenly thought, once you start looking at the world through this prism of taxation, everything makes sense. Why the world is as it is, why history unfolded in the way that it did, what we need to do to what we need to do to change it. And so that is basically daylight robbery, how tax shaped our past and will change our future. And I tried to sort of retell the history of man through this new prism of taxation. And I look at the world around us today and then I I talk about what I think is going to happen in the future. It's amazing. I cut a couple of chapters about the future out. Um, but one of the just because I thought the book was better without them, but all the stuff about the future quite almost by accident has turned out to be incredibly prophetic this year. It was written before COVID-19, but everything I said was going to happen has happened much quicker than I expected just because of COVID-19, the acceleration of money printing, which is, tax, you know, it's inflation, it's taxation without legislation, but in particular, the rise of remote working. Um, you know, I, I've always thought this is going to be a big thing. You can and and COVID-19 has normalized remote working and you know from remote working to becoming a freelancer to becoming a digital nomad they're not very big steps once you've got over the initial barrier of not actually having to go to work to an office and so yeah these are all things that I talk about in the book and and you know if I can blow my own trumpet for a bit it's the best book I've ever written <laughs> Well, that's excellent. And it's out in paperback now, I do believe. Not admittedly. Yeah, the hardback that, came out last, last yeah. year and the paperback came out like about two weeks ago. Yeah, foolishly, I just bought myself a copy of the paperback. But unfortunately, logistics are completely and utterly befuggered thanks to COVID-19 at the moment. So I've got that to look forward to maybe before Christmas. But a couple of my friends have been reading it and say it's an absolutely fantastic book. It's got, it's got rave reviews, I know, and it's really, really very interesting to hear the, the history of taxation. Um, and I think most interestingly, the person who said it was one of the best books that they'd ever read actually lives in Monaco. So if you live in Monaco <laughs> and you think a book about taxation is one of the books you've ever read, that's got to be praise indeed, hasn't it? I mean, it's one of those things. So meanwhile, you've got something, I mean, you've been involved recently with a company in Canada and you've actually been the CEO of a publicly listed company until quite recently as well, an interesting side segue of your peripatetic career. Yeah, that was uh, just funnily enough, a guy, an old friend from the mining industry who happened to know that I'd written this Bitcoin book and he had a shell in, in Canada and he was looking to turn it into some kind of Bitcoin um, uh, vehicle. And so me and another guy got involved and, and then eventually I became the CEO. Unfortunately, I had to step down in the spring. My dad um, was ill and then he passed away and I just had to step down. I had so many things going on with my family. But it's a it's a nice little tiddler. I think it's probably market caps about eight million at the moment. And it's got about five million um, dollars worth of Bitcoin in there. And um, it's got some really interesting Bitcoin investments called Cypherpunk Holdings, listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange, the CSE, which is sort of one of the, you know, the exchange for the more daring, risky, uh, racy stocks, if you like. But there's some good people involved, John Matonis, Mohammed Adam, Mo Adam, and um, a chap called uh, Tony Guobas, the new CEO, Lithuanian poker champion. Don't mess with him. <laughs> Not the man to bet with at any point in time. Thank you very much, Khaled Khan, for your comment. Very informative in relation to context of tax and history. Appreciate the feedback. Ladies and gentlemen, hit us with a like or send us some feedback or drop by exchangeinvest.com and subscribe to our newsletter, which is not about taxation. It's about something even more archaic in the world of bourses and exchanges. Read, of course, mm -hmm. by lots of the Canadian Securities Exchange, where Cyberpunk Holdings is listed. Said Azib Kazaman asked another question, Said, and it's very interesting. Do you think the big fishes will end up controlling cryptocurrency? And I mean, let me add something to that, because actually there's all of this talk at the moment where the new 
well, arguably the new incoming American regime, they've said that you know they're worried about China actually controlling the mining of Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. Now here we've got a question. Is it going to become an oligopoly effectively? Do you think the big fish will be controlling crypto trading? Well, the one of the arguments, I'm not sure if I buy the argument, but the last um, correction started. Uh, this is the the the, first, the 2016, 2017 bear market started when Bitcoin first was listed on the COMEX. <laughs> and so a lot of people uh, immediately thought there was some kind of uh, conspiracy going on there. I think the banks will struggle to control it just because, you know, the supply is so distributed and how do they control that supply? And, and it's in small hands. There's a few Bitcoin whales, but it's just, there's so many small players, you know, like Cypherpunk Holdings has got, <clears throat> I think 270 Bitcoins and it's the ninth largest institutional holder of Bitcoin in the world public, um, you know, and it's only got like $5 million worth, which in the global scheme of things is pretty, small fry so they'll struggle but i'm sure they'll do their best and I, I heard a story i don't know if it's true about a a boffin uk boffin computer boffin apparently not interested in money i've never met anyone who's genuinely not interested in money but anyway he's apparently this guy was and he mined one hundred and twenty thousand bitcoins early in the day when you could mine them you didn't need huge operations by the way as a sideline i noticed that venezuela has started its own crypto crypto mining operations got lots of cheap energy obviously venezuela but the irony of of a socialist regime like venezuela getting into crypto mining something as libertarian as bitcoin is is highly ironic but anyway the the um this chap who mined them uh in the early part of of, of this decade it's got one hundred twenty thousand recently signed a deal with JP Morgan to sell JP Morgan 120,000 Bitcoins at 15,000 a Bitcoin, which works out at roughly $2 billion. Uh, so a lot of that's a lot, but, but that means that JP Morgan might have 120,000. So that gives them a certain amount of control, but 120,000 Bitcoins in a, in a, you know, there's what, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoins at the moment. There's probably maybe 18 or 19 million. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 120,000 is, is not that many. <clears throat> Mind you, they've, they've proved in the silver markets they don't actually need to know to own that much silver in order to influence the price. Well, that's true. But then there's also the wackiness of the London gold market where the LBMA yeah. control the world and actually they just trade bits of paper against each other and they've been getting very ratty recently, haven't they, with all these people who have like souks and bazaars where they actually have gold i mean that seems to be against the rules of the game as they see it so it's it's an interesting point about control quite fascinating and thank you very much michael charlton he's, he's going going public with the fact that indeed he's been harassing me to make sure that i read this book for years and um thank he's you, looking michael. forward to reading it again so that's a word from monaco there thanks mike it's great to hear from you as always Fascinating also about Venezuela, because in fact, they've even built a complete uh, blockchain based cryptocurrency based stock market so they can avoid doing anything with US dollars. And that's a point I think you made earlier. Interesting, because, yeah, they're mining. They've got their own complete exchange now trying to keep themselves sort of on the grid, but off the grid, as it were. It's, it's really, really interesting. But indeed, isn't it fascinating that you end up, therefore, with the ultimate libertarian object is now the thing that is most prized by certain creators. <laughs> Just makes me laugh thinking about it. It, it really does. And the, the other one I thought was really interesting are these stories that, you know, North Korea is possibly mining Bitcoin as well, because that's the way for them to get hard currency. It, it's intriguing because certainly talks about the ecosystem that's been built up, which really becomes quite different. So. Just explain to us briefly, what does actually Cypherpunk Holdings therefore do, apart from holding this number of Bitcoin? It's a, it's a holding company, so it, it holds Bitcoins. The idea was we used to um, buy other cryptocurrencies. We had some Monero at some point and some Ethereum, but um, Mo and John are Bitcoin maximalists, so we ended up dropping those and focusing on the Bitcoin. And we made some investments. It, it was actually set up to be a company that invests in privacy technology 
I was convinced that privacy was going to be a huge narrative uh, over the course of this next decade. You know, when we realize how much of our privacy we've given to, you know, our mobile phone. And what's the one I have had? Yeah. Oh, like this happened two days ago. I was walking the dog in the park and I, I get I suffer. I used to swim a lot when I was younger and I've got a thing called swimmer's ear or surfer's ear, which means the my ear canals are, are very narrow. And so if I get a slight buildup of wax, I lose my hearing very quickly. So um, and I lost my hearing. And so I was walking the dog and I was Googling on my phone um, ear. What do they call it? Ear suction clinics. One of those places you go where they suck the, ear, the, the wax out of your ear. And I Google on my phone um, ear suction clinic. I got the phone number of one near me and I phoned it up to make a reservation. Made the reservation, put the phone down, opened for some reason i opened facebook on my phone you know often you know i was just playing with it while i was walking the dog to see uh you know what whatever somebody was doing on facebook and it's it's selling uh ear suction clinic adverts at me how did it know that it just it was listening it was either listening to my phone call or it was looking at what i was googling either way facebook has no right to know that because i was googling it on safari or whatever the the um the web browser on my phone that i use is so i just find that extraordinary um and you know if and i had one the other day well, this was about a year ago where i was standing with my daughter and i was going skiing the next day and i said should i bring my timberlands or my hiking boots and my daughter goes oh you should bring your timberlands and i said yeah they're a bit worn out and i got into bed and i was playing on my phone in bed and amazon's trying to sell me timberland boots how did it know? And so, you know, it's fine if it's just trying to sell, if it's making my life better and it's, you know, prompting stuff that I genuinely need, then fair enough. But if that information is falling into malevolent hands, you know, you know, and there's all this stuff about NHS track and trace and, you know, that that sort of information, it's it's fine if it's some as an innocuous as just marketing you some product. But that can be used against you um, in the wrong hands. And it's a very serious issue. So I, I was convinced that this privacy story was going to be a huge one. So we set up Cyberpunk Holdings to be a, a privacy technology invest holding and investment vehicle. So you would buy Cyberpunk Holdings and that would be how you got exposure to um, privacy technology investments. That was the idea behind it. Okay, very, very interesting altogether. So look, we're literally into the last couple of minutes of the show. Thank you very much, Khaled Khan, for your email. We're going to be in touch. We really appreciate your interest in IPO vid. That's absolutely fantastic. And we actually have a very final comment, which I'm going to give to Saeed uh, Asif Zaman, because you've been so active today. Thank you so much. There is news that China has started one of the biggest real world trials for its digital currency as it pushes closer towards creating a cashless future. Will this be decentralized or could it be controlled somehow by government? Well, I think the clue may be in the question, but Dominic, what do you think? <laughs> There's no way that it's going to be decentralized. There's absolutely no way. They were toying with the idea apparently of backing it, their digital currency with gold, which would be rather nice. This has always been the gold bug's wet dream is China wanting to put the yuan on some kind of gold standard. But I just don't, you know, China has bought massive amounts of gold and the gold backing gives its yuan credibility. But I just don't think a government that's instinctively as authoritarian as China is, is going to be in favour of gold. But anyway, it's, it's, it's digital currency. There's no way it's going to be decentralised. Absolutely no way. That is, I think, the perfect bombshell note on which to end this evening's show. We're one hour in. Dominic Frisbee, it's been an absolute joy to chat with you. Dominic is the author of multiple tomes, including Life After the State, and indeed the first book on Bitcoin, The Future of Money, from a large-scale publisher. But most importantly, recently, he is the author of Daylight Robbery, The Past, Present and Future of Taxation. You can catch him all the way through the ether sphere. I'm sure if you just say 
Dominic Frisbee to your mobile phone. It's anti-privacy actions. We'll find you millions of links to his wonderful songs, his comedy, his album, which is out for Christmas, which I do believe is going to be a major bestseller. And hopefully also your Christmas number one. Was it better something Kevin? Something yeah, Kevin? I'm going to marry Gary. I'm going to marry Gary. I'm terribly sorry. Oh, Kevin's out there. I've offended you instantaneously with my last breath. This has been IPO vid number 13 with myself, Patrick L. Young. Check out exchangeinvest.com for more about the world of exchanges. We're going to be back soon. And for now, thank you very, very much to Dominic Frisbee. I hope we'll get a chance to talk about the future of money again in the not too distant future. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great rest of your day.